Jesus said in the Gospel of John that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they might have life and have it abundantly. A couple weeks back, we got a, a call in the church office from a young lady. She was clearly distraught. She was wanting to talk to a pastor, and Karina put her through to me. And um, it took a while for her to get any words out. She was uh, sobbing so hard. I said, you just take as much time as you need. I'm just sitting here with you. And eventually she shared with me that she had in some way fallen short of a kind of standard that she had set for her own uh, behavior, something related to her workplace and she was feeling just ashamed of herself. She was devastated, and she didn't quite know where to turn. And I don't know how it was that she decided to call Prince of Peace. Uh, she indicated she'd not been here, but she thought perhaps a pastor might have something to say to her. So we talked about how it felt to fall short. And of course, we got around to spending time talking about a God that forgives and claims and calls us beloved and chooses us. And I shared with her how so much of the Bible is full of stories just like hers, that her story that morning sounded to me like one of Jesus' parables or one of his encounters with someone along the way that felt that they had been cut off and devastated and were lost, but were reclaimed by Jesus into the community and forgiven and called daughter. So we talked a bit about what it's like to be a part of a community that is centered around that very truth. We sometimes refer to it as the abundant life. What is the abundant life? How do you get it? How do you define it? This is a question that's always being wrestled with in the culture on some level or another. Is it accomplishment by some objective measure? Is it success in your job? Is it some sort of material wealth, money, lifestyle, possessions? How does your Christian faith help you answer this question? Jesus said in the Gospel of John, that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come so that they might have life and have it abundantly. So what is this abundant life, and, and how do you get it? A couple of Sundays ago, we were talking about the incredible resume of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he provided an impressive list of his own credentials, right? Some he was born with, others he attained through a study sacrifice, intellect, promotion, Hebrew of Hebrews, remember, Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul listed one of his bullet points was as to the law, blameless, tribe of Benjamin. You know, his resume read a bit like Dwight's from The Office, and you might have uh, seen his. Dwight's was star salesman, beet farmer, bed and breakfast proprietor, aspiring freelance 
bodyguard, office building owner, and former assistant to the regional manager. Uh, able to vanquish customer resistance through physically imposing alpha male traits and insatiable, merciless, jackhammer-like techniques. Uh, 13-time winner of Salesman of the Month in 2005. You do the math. Leader and mentor of underlings, and finally, expert in martial arts weaponry, paintball, and pre-industrial German. So, both Paul and Dwight have an impressive resume, but Paul did something that Dwight would certainly never do. He threw it all out. Remember? He said it's all garbage compared to the surpassing knowledge, value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And Paul said something so contrary to the way that Christian faith is so often kind of marketed in our contemporary culture. Paul went on to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Anybody else want that? Suffering and death. In today's gospel, then, a, a dispute breaks out over whether or not we ought to pay tax. It's curious because, as far as we know, Jesus hasn't mentioned anything about payment of tax in any of his teaching. He hasn't really even spoken of the government. He has taken no public position about the injustice of Romans occupying the Holy Land. And yet, his critics come to him seeking to entrap him in this kind of political-religious dilemma about paying taxes to Caesar. Taxes are, of course, a, a hot topic in the overheated presidential politics of our country at the moment. No one I know enjoys paying taxes, but imagine if we were paying taxes to a foreign force after having been overrun and occupied. Well, in this gospel text, we see members of two opposing first-century religious parties teaming up in an effort to trick Jesus. I mean, Matthew came right out and said, they're asking this question to try and trap him. What does it mean for a person of faith? They're, essentially, their question is, what does it mean for a person of faith to be both uh, patriotic and faithful in our day, Jesus? Only the, way, the tricky way they phrase it is, is like this. Tell us, Jesus, since you're so smart, and you always have an answer for any question that's asked of you, is it proper for those who follow you to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And you can just see him waiting for the answer. On one side of this unlikely alliance of questioners are the Herodians, members of a party within Judaism, who basically kept power by forging alliances with the occupying Roman forces. The Herodians, as their name implies, believed that compromise was the only way to really survive and maybe even thrive uh, as people of faith under Roman rule. So they advocated, for instance, paying the poll tax to the Romans as a way of keeping them content. 
And on, on the other side, on the opposite side of the debate stood the Pharisees. And we encounter the Pharisees often as we move our way through the Gospels. The keepers of the law, group of religious leaders who religiously held to the teachings of Moses and the prophets and who believed that compromise was out of the question. Uh, and these two groups, who were usually very much at odds, I mean, we look at the the strong divisions between Republicans and Democrats. That's nothing compared to Pharisees and Herodians, all right? But they've teamed up because they have a common threat, who is Jesus. And they come to trap him with this no-win dilemma. If he responds in favor of the Herodians, agreeing that paying taxes should be what is advocated, then, then he's seen by all the religious Pharisees as being weak on his advocating for the adherence to the Mosaic law, and, and, and he's giving in to this oppressive government. It's outright heresy. Jesus would be accused of being a heretic and unpatriotic to his own people. Uh, if, if he sides with the Pharisees and agrees that taxes should not be paid, well, now, of course, uh, he could be accused of treason, and they would run off and tattle on him and all of his followers and that would be the end of this threat. So this appears to be a no-win situation for Jesus, and it's dangerous. But there is much more at stake than these opposing leaders trying to expose Jesus for falling short of holding to a kind of Judea-first nationality related to paying taxes. In each major town in Judea, of course, there were statues of, of Caesar, and the inscriptions made it clear not only that Caesar was the ruler, the one in power, but also the inscriptions made clear that Caesar ought to be worshipped as divine. The inscription on the coin that is handed to Jesus says the same. And along comes this unlikely group made of, of Herodians, and Pharisees, and they start with flattery, which is effective with some in power. Good teacher, we see that you show partiality to no one, which is an ironic compliment given that showing partiality is all these guys do, huh? I mean, the Pharisees are marching around calling everybody to strict adherence to the letter of the law. That's how they lived. They show partiality as a way of life. Tell us then, Jesus, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Well, hand me a coin, Jesus says. Whose image is on this coin? Caesar, the emperor. Then give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, Jesus said. But be careful. Don't give to Caesar the things that belong to God. And their faces must have changed because they took off running home. They were amazed, we're told. In my translation, it's going to say they were bamboozled. They left Jesus. Whose image is on the coin? All those gathered would know that in the creation story in Genesis 2, it says that we are created in the image of God. In this community, 
we celebrate that God's image is stamped on us in our baptisms. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. The coin may belong to Caesar. You belong to God. Jesus has taken a loaded political, religious question at a heated political time and made it a question of identity. Who is the object of your highest devotion? To whom do you belong in this world? What defines you? As usual, Jesus begins to turn our attention to what we should care about most, our neighbor in need. Those left out by a culture that does nothing better than show partiality. Hmm? This pandemic is falling a hundred times harder on those at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder. This culture is built on showing partiality and privilege. Here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is leading up to a teaching about the greatest commandments of our faith. He will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's where Jesus shows us that sometimes even our most cherished values, political and otherwise, can become golden calves. And he calls us back to the font, back to the community that defines us as forgiven, chosen children of God. This, our core identity. And yes, this identity will cost us something. A life filled with meaning and purpose and connection and community and compassion and forgiveness is not the easy life. It's not. But it is the abundant life. I want to know Christ and the powers of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, Paul said. The abundant life. In the waters of baptism... We hear the very promise that will be spoken again in our funeral services. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Though we are currently not able to be present for worship together in the same ways that we have loved and appreciated, this gospel that defines us has not been put on pause The church has not closed. The mission and ministry we share continues to matter. On behalf of our neighbor and the most vulnerable among us, we are always adapting and sacrificing and giving. We have life-saving good news to share. And that good news brings life and hope and healing. And sometimes it turns tears of shame and regret into 
tears of deep gratitude, abundant life. Amen. I'm going to say one more time, because even some of you who have heard the announcement now multiple times will forget and be here at the wrong time next Sunday. So, first service, 30-minute spoken word, no congregational singing or litanies or spoken prayers. Leaders will be masked, uh, but it'll be a lovely time of worship together for those who feel well and are comfortable coming into this space uh, where we will be socially distanced. That's at 9 a.m. next Sunday. It is possible that you could arrive uh, to find that the available spaces have already been taken, at which point the ushers will simply ask you to uh, head back home and join us for our live stream service, which will be at 10.30 a.m. That service will be very much uh, like the service we have experienced here this morning. Uh, so strong reminder, more uh, mailings will go out, uh, blasts, emails, uh, Facebook, and so forth during this week. But you might help us by sharing this with your uh, friends and fellow members, especially those who may not uh, be online as much as some others. So thanks for that. We do know that uh, as uh, we continue through this, uh, this time of pandemic that uh, for some people, uh, it's becoming uh, an increasing struggle, the isolation, the approaching holidays, and the thought of not being together in the ways that we have loved and cherished and, turns out, taken for granted for so many years are, are, are taken from us. Uh, others are, are struggling physically and financially in ways that are profound, uh, and so we are reminded as God's chosen and claimed and forgiven people that the ministry we share is so vitally important. This gospel, this good news that you ha carry with you as a child of God is, is life-giving, sometimes life-saving in the world today. So the church is in some sense in the midst of this pandemic deployed, which is as it probably ought to be. Uh, we are grateful every time we think of you uh, out there uh, being bearers of this very good news that calls us together here now. And now as we go in peace to love and serve the Lord, thanks be to God.